Hello and welcome to the symposium. This is our new studio here and I'm joined by Bo and Josh. Hello. For the first symposium in this studio. Now, uh, this is completely uncharted territory because it is the first premium content we are recording in the new studio with three people from the Lotus Eaters team and bear with us. It's completely experimental. So for today, I thought that we should definitely discuss about a very interesting topic, about the topic of conceptual subversion. And very frequently, you know, we care about the concepts we use, but we also hear people who say that, no, it's just words. You shouldn't you know, waste time thinking because uh, you know, that's just passive reflection. What is important is action. And you know, reflection is just words. I think that this is a very dangerous assumption, and it's very important to show why it is a dangerous assumption. Now, if it could have a knee-jerk reaction from both of you. Yeah, it's just mm -hmm. wrong, isn't it? That's just a wrong-headed view. The world goes round on words. Mm -hmm. It's the most powerful thing. It's surprising to me when you look back at history, how it's like an individual pamphlet, an individual speech changes history. It really does. Or it can... It can catapult an individual from almost nothing to the heights of power, um, just, to, just words. It's unbelievable how powerful they are. Anyone that makes the argument that you don't, don't worry about words, they're just a, distra a distraction. They're either lying deliberately or, or they've just got a terribly wrong-headed view of, of reality. Right? I'm of the opinion that to, to be able to know what action to take, you need to be able to discuss things, to break things down, because the world is very complicated. And if you're to, uh, normally it's uh, in the context of political action in some way, right? You need to understand the situation. You need information. You need to know, you know what you're doing, how to operate in the political sphere as efficiently as possible. And to do that, you need to communicate. You need to understand uh, the ideas that are in circulation. So to, you need that sort of prerequisite ability to converse, to exchange ideas, that sort of thing, to have any chance of having any meaningful action in the first place. I think there is a kind of naivety in this assumption, the assumption that reflection has no, nothing to give us. And uh, we want just action but no reflection because unless we're able to formulate uh, some plans, mm -hmm. And these plans need to be very sophisticated because, okay, things, things are complex. Society is complex. It is very unlikely that a simple plan is going to take account of most of the intricacies that we want from it to take into account. And uh, I think it's also important to show another issue that we are not shielded from the world. We are very much uh, influenced by the world. And uh, very frequently, people who make this assumption they say that, no, I'm, I'm not going to think about things. I'm not going to, let's say, engage in conceptual reflection. I am going to just be a man of action, and I'm not interested in concepts. But the thing is that when we're talking about action, as we said, there needs to be some thought behind it. And thought, the fundamental building blocks of thought are concepts. So when we have when we get habituated into using some concepts, we get habituated into thinking in some ways. And we also get habituated into forming our self-conception. So language is a shared practice. It's a shared institution, if I may say. 
it's something that you know we, we didn't f- form a language out of our head, or at least the language we speak arose spontaneously across centuries. It's like what the, a tradition that we talk about. So we should focus a lot on concepts and how they can change, because unless we become clear about the intricacies of conceptual change, we are much more vulnerable to propaganda and a kind of propaganda that makes us view ourselves in the way that our political opponents want us to view ourselves. And also in a way that governments that do not seem to have people with good intentions want us to think of ourselves. And I would say that Codes of ethics change, but also the across time, but also the way we view of ourselves changes. And it seems to me that in contemporary Western societies, there is a trend, and I think that to a very large extent, there is a kind of conceptual subversion beneath it. There is a trend of what seeing ourselves and conceiving of ourselves as victims. There is a spread of cultural victimhood, and we are highlighting, or we tend to highlight the passive aspect of human nature at the expense of highlighting the active aspect of human nature. And if we do not give sufficient, let's say, attention to the active aspect of human nature, morality is going to have a problem. We're going to have a problem with morality. So I think that it's important to focus on what language is. This is a major question. But it's important to focus at least on what are some wrong views of language. So let's say that we use the term of equality, or someone uses the term of equality. What is the first thing that comes to mind? So you have your face with an SJW who uh, comes and talks to you, and they argue with you, and they argue against your point, and they want to tell you that somehow what you are saying violates equality what is the first thing that comes to mind well um this is from my own experience so obviously it's not necessarily typical of most people but i know that the word equality is used because it's got interpersonal significance if if the dynamic between two people is unequal um then normally it's seen as a, a sort of bad thing on a social level but when it's applied to a society it's actually a sort of beating stick to get resources out of people who you don't know, you don't interact with, and it's just a means of people grifting in a, a, a political sense in that they're saying the word equality and relying on the positive connotations it has because it's more appropriate to use it in a, an individual setting. And most people look at politics through that lens, don't they? They, they kind of um, analogize their interpersonal relations to society or to politics more generally. And so they're relying on that positive sentiment to then um, do something more insidious um, and sort of a a sleight of hand of of switching out what seems like fairness, but it's actually not. It's stealing other people's resources that they have no right or claim to to having in the first place. If, If you ask me what's the first thing that comes to mind, like literally the first image that popped into my mind, uh, you know, like a Rorschach test. It's um, probably like a, a song culotte from the French Revolution with one of those red hats on, <laughs> like a big-nosed Gallic Frenchman. Yeah. 
an unwashed peasant wielding a meat cleaver, screaming, uh, egalite, fraternite, equalite, something like that that springs yeah. to mind. Um, it does have sort of French Revolution connotations, doesn't it? I mean, of course, that slogan that you said is one of the ones of yeah. the, the French Revolution, right? A poor person just um, screaming bloody murder, literally, um, because, because they're not rich and there's a rich person they could kill. Uh, but the other thing that sort of springs to mind, at least nowadays, is someone like, I don't know, Kamala Harris or AOC, sort of just deliberately muddying the waters between um, equity and equality, just deliberately trying to bamboozle people um, into stealing their money. That's the end game, isn't it? So I think that one thing to notice here is that this, what you're referring to, seems to me to be the conventional meaning of the term equality, or at least the conventional meaning of the term of equality in some circles, we could say in conservative circles. It, it happens. But one of, the, one of the things that seems to me to be flying under the radar is that we didn't pose to ask equality of what? And I include myself into this because I want to show that what these false assumptions about language are Assumptions that I think we tend to make, and maybe there are, uh, you know, psychological pressures to make. I'm sure you will have a lot to add on this. Oh yeah. Uh, but we didn't pose to think equality of what. We rushed to think and to assume that it, that the concept of equality captures one thing and one thing only. Was it for social freedom or money? Yes. Mm. So we just but, assumed that, didn't we? I suppose you're right. So the, a really interesting question would be equality of what? Is it equality of rights? Is it equality of resources, equality of income, equality of wealth, equality of opportunity, equality of status as a citizen, as we see in Aristotle, for instance, and uh, the care for uh, the, f the free and the equal in ancient Athens, weren't the, the equal in terms of money, they were the citizens. It was an issue of status. So I think that one of the things that is really important is to ask ourselves, what is it that we mean when we use a term, but also what is it that other people mean when they use a term? And I think that we should constantly be more demanding of ourselves than others. And instead of finding ourselves dragged into the framing effect where people want to frame us and want us to uh, basically answer and give yes or no answers to questions that they formulate in a very sneaky way, and very devious way, I would say, we should constantly be qualifying. And I think we should constantly ask of ourselves, what do we mean by this concept when we use it, instead of just using it carelessly mm -hmm. in the way that we don't like people to use it, when, for instance, we, we, don't, we dislike people who uncritically throw notions like that without supporting them, intellectually speaking. But also we should be a bit more demanding of other people. So we should pose to we should ask them, no, what do you mean? Uh, in what sense do you mean this term? What do you want to capture with it? So I think that there it is very human to make these assumptions, and it is very human to make the assumption that language is static and that there is only one meaning of a particular concept, which is the conventional one. But it's more messy. And this is a difficult thing to, to digest. 
But I think it's a very important thing to digest because the more we start thinking about it, our thought will be completely transformed. Spoken like a true philosopher. I mean, that's something Socrates could have said. What do you mean by that, though? But, exactly. what, but what are you saying? Exactly. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, it's very helpful. It's sometimes annoying, actually, but, but helpful. It, 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 it means you get to um, well, more, a higher resolution version of what... When you write, I think when you write, when you're writing, it's more, it seems to me, more obvious than when you're speaking. Because when you're speaking, you have a conversation in real time. It's quite a quick back and forth exchange. But when you write something down, whether it's an essay or an article, or actually quite often if you try and write fiction, you realize if you also have any sort of introspection, you realize, but what is the, the person that's reading this though? What yeah. image are they going to have? So say you try and describe a scene, a fictional scene, and you describe it. Obviously, you're, you've got an image in your own head and you try and describe it as best possible. But you've then got to think, what image is the person that's reading this going to conjure in their own mind? Yeah. And the reality is that each person will conjure something sort of unique for themselves. Now, the same happens in a conversation, but it's easy to forget or skate over that because it's such a quick back and forth usually. Um, you know, an actual debate is a bit different when one person speaks for a long time and then the other person responds for a long time. But in a normal conversation in the pub or something, you speak over each other and you yes. speak past each other very easily, very, very easily. You didn't stop to say, wait, I just need to make sure you've, you're actually using the exact, you've got the same concept in your mind that I have when I use this one word. I mean... I think in that case, though, normally you would have a, a bit of a, a, a disagreement or like um, someone would bring a presumption that would take you a bit by surprise and then you kind of walk it back. So, wait, what do you mean by such and such? Um, but yes. Um, you, sometimes you, you have to, though, don't you, in a conversation? Sometimes you realise, oh, that other person is talking about something completely different. We're using the mm -hmm. same word, but you've obviously, you're obviously thinking about something completely mm -hmm. different to what I'm talking about. I thought it was quite interesting that you brought up the, these sort of um, differences and similarities between written and spoken language, because typically uh, written language is more consciously constructed, isn't it? And therefore you're using different parts of your brain um, and you're, you're thinking in different terms, more or less. And so um, it makes sense that this is going to be um, perhaps a little bit more um, focused on the perceptions that are going to be brought to the table. Whereas when you're having a conversation, if you, you take long pauses to really think about what you're saying, unless you're Jordan Peterson or something who will sit there in silence, most of the time someone's either going to interrupt you or they're going to think, wow, you're a bit slow. And I think lots of people fear that, that they, they look foolish. And I don't think there's actually anything wrong with it. But at the same time, I think we have the, the inclination to fill the void with noise just so mm. we seem attentive because if we just sit there in silence as well it also seems a bit impolite that we're going to just subject that person to our own sort of indulgent introspection before we speak there's a sort of uh, inherent um, impoliteness to it that I don't necessarily agree with it doesn't have to be rude but people see it that way and therefore they're a bit less inclined to do so but to return quickly to your example of um, equality Part of the reason that I brought my presumption to that is that I think it's a, a false concept. I don't think and there's, there's such a thing. It's a, a fool's errand to, to pursue it, that there's nothing equal in the world. Everything is, is kind of, uh, has its own differences. And so 
the the only context in which I really approach it um, is in the political sense, which is why I brought that presumption. Had you brought a different word, perhaps, and you could bring more um, of so, solid and objective um, definitions of it, and perhaps a more objective understanding, if that's even possible. When you say it's a false concept, do you mean that it makes no sense, or do mm -hmm. you mean that a whole number of propositions that involve the notion of equality and are really frequently used in political debates are false? Um, both, actually. But okay. yeah, I just don't think that there's such a thing as equality. I think it's a, a social construct that doesn't really apply very well to the real world. But wouldn't you say that morally speaking, the concept in, in some senses makes sense in that, for instance, it's the fundamental building block of justice that you treat equal cases alike and unequal cases uh, mm -hmm. differently, as Aristotle would say. It's, it's a nice ideal in that sense, but I don't think it actually happens. Okay. Um, if I may say something, Bo, about what you said before, um, it seems to me that one really interesting thing to, two really interesting things to say about in what you raised is that individual sentences, especially individual words, have no meaning by themselves. I know this may sound completely counterintuitive because we have the tendency to think that the language language is a sort of uh, bottom-up construct from individual words. But actually, we'll see that individual words are have a completely underdetermined meaning. They could mean anything. We can under we can m m understand what they mean better in the context of a sentence. But also the same applies for a sentence. Uh, you can have an individual sentence and give multiple interpretations of it. So the idea is that the more context we have, the more able we are to understand each part. And the same applies to history, to, econo to the economy, to politics, as well as to language. The more knowledge of the context we have, the better able to understand we are to understand what people mean when they use a particular concept or not. And this is also an issue in, uh, in interpreting texts. That very frequently we need to, why do we feel the need to become acquainted with the historical period in which a text was written? Because we want to understand what was in the author's mind. We want to see how they viewed things and we want to see if they viewed things in different ways that, than we do or, or the same. And uh, I think that this is an interesting thing to bear to to mention because when we when we approach individual sentences, each speaker approaches them and tries to decipher what they mean in terms of their background assumptions. And very frequently, our background assumptions are completely different, and they are specific to the individual. Does this make uh, sense? I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when you say individual words have no meaning, uh, if, I ask, if, if I can ask you about that, so what the, the individual sound that you make yes, for the you, word, you could say doesn't that. necessarily have any real meaning. It's just what you put to it. I I think Is so. Is that what you mean? I, I think surely so. Surely nouns or proper nouns have got more sort of intrinsic meaning than. Verbs and things, perhaps. I mean, obviously, we can disagree. Take the word chair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can have different concepts in our mind of what a chair is, or there's sort of the, the Platonic perfect chair and all that sort of thing. But nonetheless, it's quite easy to agree 
Yeah. Um, and what a, you know, if you, if you point at one chair, a physical object, you say the word chair. Yes. It, there's a meaning there, isn't there? You can't say there's no meaning to it. There is. But would you say that there is a meaning because you ostensibly define it? You're also performing an action. You're, you're saying, you know, you're showing something, say chair. Um, if we abstracted that from the context, would it make the same uh, meaning? If we abstracted... You'd have to abstract it from all mm. of reality, though. Um, no? I, I don't think so, but we could say that this takes us into really complex issues in philosophy of language right, okay, and yeah. the extent to which language is seen as a sort of platonic object on the one hand, or it is seen as a... An, inst uh, an institutional There are, there are whole books written arises. about this sort of thing, right? Yes. People I've have studied whole, this. Yeah. People have whole careers, yeah. tenured professorships based on talking about that sort of yeah. thing. Right. I do feel like nouns and proper nouns are yeah. different to... Anyway, sorry. I no, 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 please. Well, no, because something that's just um, much more um, ethereal or subjective, like the idea, the concept of uh, being vague, let's say, if I said, oh, that's vague, well, actually, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, an odd example to use. Um, but say something like a, a colour, say something like green. There's so many different shades of green. People might literally perceive the colour green differently. Yep. So it's much, it's much more difficult to pin down than just a straight-up noun like chair. I think we should right. revisit this on okay. another right. uh, symposium <laughs> okay, it's, it's a, because we, we, could, we could talk about this endlessly. Fair enough, but fair enough. what if I rephrase this for, for the discussion's sake and say that it is not that individual nouns have no meaning but by themselves, but the meaning that they have can be better understood the more we contextualize. So for instance, uh, an author uses the term freedom. Uh, Tacitus, for instance, may use the term freedom. In order to understand what Tacitus means with that sentence, it is real. It makes our lives easier to get acquainted with the with the the whole text, but also the history in which Tacitus was writing. Mm. In which mm. case, I don't have to make the strong claim that a noun has no meaning, but I could make the weaker claim that we can understand. Uh, the meaning of a particular concept better if we contextualize. The more we contextualize, the better able we are to understand what a particular concept is supposed to mean. Yeah? That sounds fine to me. So, in order to show the mechanics of, the, of conceptual subversion, I think it's important to start with four concepts. And these are the notion of a concept, the extension of a concept, the conventional meaning of a concept, and the symbolic status of a concept. Now, this may, might sound a bit weird, but uh, don't be discouraged. It's, uh, if, you, if you really listen to it, it's, it's going be, to become very intuitive. So we could say that there are many ways to understand what a concept is. And uh, the metaphysics of concept has to do with the metaphysics of thought. And it's basically the question, what is the mind and what is thought? That's a very big question. But what we could say provisionally for this a conversation is that concepts are the fundamental building blocks of thought. We think in terms of concepts. When we think, we think that something is the case. Thought has a particular content, and that is supposed to be the intentionality of the mind, that when we think, we think of something. 
and we formulate it in terms of concepts. For instance, I may think that classical liberalism can be defended and that classical liberalism can be, let's say, uh, conjoined with a substantial degree of conservatism. These are propositions. It may be true, they may be true, they may be false, but in, in expressing a thought, we express a proposition by using concepts. And we could say that the propositions, the thoughts that we think of are sort of an elaborate structure of concepts used in a particular way. So we could say that the concepts are the fundamental building blocks of thought. And we could have concepts, concepts such as red, blue, green, um, conservatism, liberalism, Marxism, socialism, abuse, harm, etc. Now, another thing to bear in mind which is our second concept, it's the extension of a concept. And this is the most dangerous to miss because I will make the argument that when we miss the mechanics of, the, of changing the extension of a concept, we miss a great amount of conceptual subversion and may, it flies under the radar. Now, the extension of a concept refers to the things to which the concept applies. So for instance, we have, let's take the concept green. The extension of the concept is all the red things, all the green things. So everything that, all the green things re represent the extension of a concept. And we could say that when it comes to a color, it's easy to sort of agree upon when something is green or not. Um, or at least it's easier than when it comes to more abstract notions such as you know, conservatism, Marxism, socialism, fascism, concepts like that. And as I, I will make the case in a, in a while that wokeness is basically based on a ridiculous inflation of the extension of the concept of harm. Now, this may sound a bit off-putting the way I phrased it, but you will see that in a bit it's going to be it's going to become more and more and more intuitive so bear bear with me but even the color like green i mean you get into is it blue or is it green or is it aquamarine yeah. <laughs> you know you could nice little rhyme there. <laughs> um that's from disney's alice in wonderland oh is it really the song anyway oh, right. um yeah but even something as simple as, as apparently straightforward as just green Actually, if you wanted to, especially if you were deliberately trying to muddy the waters and to create yeah. division. So you can say, that's not actually green. That's not technically green. That's not, we, that's not what we call green. You can you know, definitely do it. So yeah. when you get into politics, you're like, what is, what is or isn't liberal or what is or isn't conservative? Yep. Um, it's, an, it's just a giant minefield. It's really easy to, to um, make sure people don't agree. Yes. Right. It's just such a massive nebulous thing. Like the concept of freedom. It's just a giant, a giant, massive nebulous thing. Um, that almost by definition, two people aren't going to agree on exactly what they both mean by it. Well, in, right? in the case of freedom, lots of different political ideologies appeal to the notion of freedom. And they, they obviously can't all mean the same thing because they're coming at it from different perspectives. Mm. And so it, it has to mean other things. It's a sort of almost 
a motive thing in a sense. In that, you know, it's it's trying to suggest that it gives you agency and, and free will over your own life choices. And that's generally the sort of gist, but what that actually is and how it takes form is massively different. And we all keep still using the word, mm-hmm. but only a few philosophers at a university actually argue over what's meant by it. Mm. Um, I mean, Carl and I, when we did a... Uh, sorry. No, I'm just saying I'm one of them. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, when Carl and I did a conversation about representation, we got into that a bit, that different philosophers through the centuries have talked about representation and quite often meant sort of fairly radically different things by it, but they all keep using the same word. Um, but anyway, sorry, Stelis, I'll let you carry on. Um, another concept to bear in mind is the conventional meaning of a concept, which is the meaning most people associate with it in a particular society at a particular place in time. And here is where we could have the sort of most, here is where most people think that, you know, they, they, they operate in. And, you know, we know what freedom is, we know what equality is, and they refer to the conventional meaning of the concept in their time. But this can change. And especially we, we, will, we will talk about the notion of freedom I have many notes uh, about it. We'll see how it changes across time. And the fact that a particular notion is supposed to mean something or is associated with something in a particular era and society does not mean that it will always mean the same thing. So in a way, with language, we're never safe. With concepts, we're never safe. Um, I want to make everyone insecure with that assumption that language is... (laughs) Completely transparent and never Nobody changes. Nobody is safe. Another layer of complexity is um, that different languages, yep. right? Because you mentioned Tacitus. Well, it's going to be an English translation from the original Latin. So, and I know for a fact, even though my Latin isn't very good, I know for a fact that Tacitus will use multiple versions of the word freedom. Yeah. And most English texts just just use the word freedom again and again and again. But he's got many different types of word. Yep. And so anyway, between actual dialects, let's say, there's another layer of abstraction there. I think that's really important to note because it, it links with what we said before about context, because when he uses the same term, but in ways that do not seem to be the same, the best way to approach it, and arguably it is the only way, is to gain acquaintance, acquaintance with the context uh, more. So we want to understand, okay, he uses this term, the term freedom in this context, in the context of, for instance, a Roman emperor's subjecting people to their arbitrary whim. Uh, That's the Republican notion of freedom. Or he could talk about uh, freedom in terms of non-interference. That is another concept. We'll we'll, we'll talk about it uh, when we talk about specifically about the concept of freedom and how it gets conceptually subverted nowadays. Now, and the fourth concept is the symbolic status of a concept. So let me say the four concepts again. We have concept, extension of a concept, conventional meaning of a concept, and the symbolic status of a concept. Now, this is really important, and the way it operates is really uh, interesting to understand. Why? Because... Speech does not occur in a vacuum. Speech occurs always in a particular context with people who converse, 
and who talk, and there is an underlying power dynamic and a social background. And different societies have different codes of ethics. And not every society claims to be about the same values. There are some concepts that, ca- that are seen as supremely uh, important because they capture value- values in s- some societies. And the same concept may not be as important in another society. Why? Because one society may, pri- may praise what the concept is supposed to stand for, where another is supposed to disagree with it. And this functions in, in two levels of generality. One is the most general level, where we have terms like good and evil, or uh, no right or wrong, virtue and vice. Um, we could say that in every society, everything that is associated with a good has a distinct motivation, and it grants a, sim- a positive symbolic power. And everything that is associated with evil, it, again, possesses symbolic power, but in a negative sense. People want to avoid it. So it is very important to bear in mind that the question of the symbolic status of a concept in a particular society is directly related with the values of that society. And I think we should definitely talk about Western societies in particular today because we are operating within this context and we we constantly want to talk about how Western civilization can improve and what the threats to it, of it to to it are. Now, it seems to me that one of the fu- fundamental values in Western civilization, at least the way we understand it after the fall of the Berlin War, or you could say during the Cold War, is the concept of freedom. It's one of the basic concepts. We have other concepts as well, like the concept of a nuclear family, but. I think that this is one of those concepts that most people, I'm not saying everyone, some people may disagree, may think that you know, freedom is a bad thing, but most people associate with the term freedom something really, really, really valuable and good. So the accusation of someone being illiberal has a distinctive force. The accusation of someone being against the values of society has a distinctive force. And I will say now the goal of conceptual subversion is to twist language in a manner to get your political opponents to identify in the ter- in terms that suggest that they are anti-positive symbol in their society. So right now, it seems to me that you know, the woke movement tries to get its political opponents to identify, for instance, as being illiberal or as being against freedom. And I know some of you may not agree with my defense of uh, some features of classical liberalism. Uh, I accept this and we should all be here to discuss it. But we should agree or disagree with this. I don't think that people we see in the woke movement care about liberty. It seems to me that they care about subjecting others to their whims. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.